everyone, it's Zoe and Larissa. Welcome back to the Shadow Light podcast where we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. This week, we're so excited to be introducing our first of two guest episodes hosted by the brilliant Samara Almonte, one of Shadow's fabulous editorial team and founder of Raíces Verdes, a platform dedicated to validating, archiving and sharing the experiences of racialized peoples reconnecting with their green roots. Over the next two episodes, Samara will be chatting with two amazing guests and legendary native storytellers about their craft, their histories and the importance of their storytelling work. Do enjoy. You are listening to Raíces Verdes, a platform dedicated to archiving and sharing the experiences of Black, Indigenous, people of color across diasporic experiences reconnecting with their green roots. Green roots are defined as our ancestral connection to the earth that embodies our relationships with all living and spiritual beings. Through multimedia storytelling rooted in self-determination, Raíces Verdes envisions marginalized people finding a healing by reconnecting with the land through our unique ancestral frameworks to create a more sovereign future for all Black and Indigenous people across the world. My name is Samara Almonte, and I acknowledge that I am recording on occupied Snohomish territory, part of the Coast Salish People's Territory. Um, it's been a while since I've had a guest on the podcast, and I'm really excited because this is the first time I also get to interview an author of a book I've read, and definitely a little bit of a fangirl moment because I just really, really enjoyed this book, um, The Seed Keeper, and so I'm really excited to have the author uh, here today. So before we get started, I just want to introduce her, if y'all are not familiar with who Diane Wilson is. She is a Dakota writer and educator who has published four award-winning books, as well as essays in numerous publications. Her first picture book, Where We Come From, co-written with John Coy, Sung Yun Shin, and Shannon Gibney, was released in October 2022. Wilson's novel, The Seed Keeper, received the 2022 Minnesota Book Award for Fiction. Her memoir, Spirit Cart, Journey to a... Dakota Past won a 2006 Minnesota Book Award and was selected for the 2012 One Minneapolis One Read program. Her 2011 nonfiction book, Beloved Child, A Dakota Way of Life, was awarded the 2012 Barbara Sudler Award from History Colorado. Wilson's middle-aged biography, Ella Cara Deloria, Dakota Language Protector, was an honor selection for the 2022 American Indian Youth Literature Award. Her essays have appeared in many anthologies, including Kinship, Belonging in a World of Relations, 2021, We Are Meant to Rise, 2021, and A Good Time for the Truth, 2016. Wilson is a former executive director for Dream of Wild Health, an indigenous nonprofit farm, and the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, a national coalition of tribes and organizations working to create sovereign food systems for Native people. Wilson is a Midwakanton descendant enrolled on the Rosebud Reservation. Hi, Dan. Hi, nice to be here today. Thank you so much. Well, I'm just really excited because there were so many parts of the book that really resonated with my own story. I guess I should have added a little bit of that as well. I am um, a Purepecha descendant, which is a community down in like central Mexico, as we know it now. And I'm living, like I mentioned, in Coast Salish territory. So just all this theme of like living outside of the territory and reconnecting just really, you know, resonated with me from your book. Mm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And I've tried really hard to make the questions, you know, relatively like not give a lot of spoiler alerts, of course, because we, <laughs> we want people to uh-huh. read the book afterwards if they haven't before. 
but I'm just excited to discuss the overall theme. So if you're ready, we can just get right into it. Yeah, let's jump in. Okay, so I think, you know, the theme of passing down generational knowledge, especially amongst Indigenous women and the connection they have to seeds is really written into the title of the book, right? The Seed Keeper. So I just would love to hear from you, like what guided you to write a book about Indigenous women and their relationship with seeds? You know, it's funny when I was thinking about this question, you know, in a way you just organically evolve into the next work. And so I had to stop and think, well, what was that <laughs> inspiration behind this particular book out of all the other, out of all the topics I could choose? And so w- what I think was most important to me was um, thinking about the work that I'd been doing. I'm also a gardener um, and I was working for a nonprofit organization, Dream of Wild Health, as they were just beginning the work of preserving and sharing back and growing out um, a collection of indigenous seeds that mm-hmm. they had been gifted with. And there was only a handful of each of each seed. And, you know, they had Cherokee Trail of Tears corn that had been carried. Um, they were descended from the original seeds carried on the, on the removal. They had Hopi black turtle beans and, and very old traditional tobacco. And so Working as a volunteer and then coming into the organization and learning so much from elders and farmers and youth and from the seeds themselves about an entirely different way of being in relationship with seeds and plants and lands that was um, much more of an indigenous worldview where it is centered in relationship. And so I felt so blessed to have had that experience and to have had the, the opportunity to witness the transformative power of working with seeds and land again and, and how that can be a healing pathway in our work of cultural recovery. And so really for me that the decision to tell this story in particular came from a desire to give back, to give back to the people who had shared their teachings with me so generously and to share that story of the seeds themselves, how beautiful, how magical, what a gift they are. And then to make sure that that experience and information was shared with a broader community and passed on to future generations, which is really the responsibility I feel as a writer. So that's that was my biggest motivation, was just wanting to, it's, a, it's like a love story to these seeds. Mm, yes, I definitely felt that throughout the book. And I think, you know, you can... Uh, I'm sure you felt similar, but like you were saying, you know, these seeds held on for so long through all this like trauma and displacement. And I feel like having books like yours, The Seed Keeper and these stories is a way to archive some of that. Right. Because constantly we're faced as Indigenous people with the wanting of erasure of our history and of our knowledge. And so I think it's really great that you're like almost archiving, right, some of this story. Because I think I remember, I don't know if it was at the beginning or at the end of the book, you mentioned that this is like a mix of like fiction, but also like some stories, right, that you encountered, which seems like during this work. Yeah, there's a lot of um, true factual history. The context around the 1862 Dakota War is very factual, as is what what has happened to the seeds themselves from World War II in particular on when, you know, seed companies began 
controlling seeds and working to genetically modify them. So there's a lot of just factually based information. And then I, I wrote the story around that so that so that I could create the characters that I needed to carry different perspectives forward. Right. No, definitely. Yeah. And I think, um, as I was mentioning, you know, one of the central themes that really resonated with me in particular, which I always love because, as I mentioned, my family is, you know, indigenous to a different, completely different part of the world in sense of like it's further south, right, from where this uh, story takes place. But I could still find these themes connecting to me. And for me, it was really the theme of um, Rosalie's story on reconnection with the land. And so I was curious, you know, why did he choose to center this theme of like Rosalie kind of reconnecting with uh, her indigenous ancestry and her land rather than maybe having the story take place if she had grown up with her biological family and on her land? Well, I was thinking particularly in terms of cultural recovery and what a, a critically important process that is for so many Native communities and so many Native individuals um, whose lives have been impacted by assimilation, such as boarding schools and land allotment and intermarriage and all these things that have been imposed on Native communities as a way of repressing culture, repressing language, spirituality. And that because of that, you know, we see families and individuals whose lives have been so impacted by assimilation that it's hard to know how to do that work of reclaiming your identity. And so I wanted to show that story of a woman like Rosalie, whose family has been so hit so hard by assimilation through boarding schools, through, you know, the through all of the ways in which they had been separated from their relationship with land, from their language. And Rosalie, you know, at the beginning of the story, really has no connection. She's lost her family and her language. Right. And the seeds themselves are at the are on the verge of extinction because of again, assimilation in this in this shift to a different agricultural system. So I wanted to show how when we honor that original relationship between seeds and human beings to take care of each other, that even at that far edge, when it seems like there's hardly anything left, that when you, when you pick up the thread of that relationship again, that it is still possible to find your way back, to use that, um, what you're learning from the seeds and the seeds are then relying on human beings to bring them back. And that together we find our way, we find our way home is essentially the theme that mm-hmm. we need each other. And I wanted this to be, even though it covers, you know, difficult history, difficult experiences, I wanted it to be a hopeful story of how we can, this is a pathway for cultural recovery. Yes. Yeah, I definitely feel like when I was reading the book, the first couple chapters, right, where we uh, get to know Rosalie and her story of, like you were saying, of of displacement and of like trauma and of her just like losing that connection and not having that connection at all. It was difficult at times. I had to like put the book down and be like, wow, this just feels like too personal, right? Like I could relate to certain aspects of it. Um, and then there were, but then, like you said, as like the story advanced, I started feeling like a lot more hopeful and excited. And I really did finish the book feeling like, okay, this is just another reminder of how important it is to see seeds and other plant relatives as relatives, right? Not just as yes. like our 
um, just like a one-way relationship or a relationship of productivity or what are they going to offer us, but rather a reciprocal relationship. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I thought it was super interesting. I think one of the most fascinating things about this story was the juxtaposition of the other characters. So the other questions I had was around, you know, the other central theme which you were able to weave in, which was the topic of white farmers and how they were able to take land from indigenous people and weirdly feel like the sense of ownership and connection to land that's been passed down through generations of white farmers, as we saw the case with the character of John. Um, So I just am curious, you know, like you have this story of Rosalie, who's clearly an indigenous person, like you said, doing cultural recovery work. But then there's this juxtaposition of John, this white farmer who comes from a legacy of people feeling like an ownership over the land. And, you know, he's quoting like Franklin D. Roosevelt a lot in the book and just like really this sort of traditional white farmer kind of culture. And so I am really interested what made you decide to include his character and add that almost as like opposition to Rosalie's story. So when I when I think about the book thematically, I think of Rosalie and John as they represent as characters the the two very different worldviews so that they are juxtaposed to put those worldviews side by side so that we have John as a descendant of settlers. He's white and he is, he's come from a a worldview that really views land, plants, animals, water, everything as a commodity. And so that commodities can be bought and sold. And it's not about that relationship isn't centered in the the view that that an indigenous relationship to the earth is is centered in which is viewing the land plants animals water as relatives and so when you view everything as a relative then you have a responsibility of care and a reciprocity of care that is fundamental to that relationship and you make decisions about how you're going to be in relationship according to those values. So by putting Rosalie and John together in a relationship, I was juxtaposing those two worldviews. And I was really trying to show from that lens of the seeds themselves as almost the overarching um, character because they open and close the book. And so that the seeds pose that question early on about the humans no longer upholding their part of that original agreement, meaning to take care of each other. And so showing through that relationship in these worldviews, what is happening to our relationship with seeds in particular? And then what are the consequences, not only for us as human beings, but also for the seeds themselves and for the land and for our water, because there is a real ripple effect that mm-hmm. goes out with some of these changes. Genetically modified seeds, you know, is a devastating technology that impacts not only seeds, but also the soil and the water. And then all of all of the other relatives who rely on healthy soil and water and plants and food. So their their relationship is very much about that juxtaposition. But I also wanted to really look into the that relationship on the part of white farmers, because I saw a real shift from the generations who did take good care of their farms and were at least taking care of their soil and their animals. And, you know, as John 
John's father had done. And then what happened after World War II, when we got chemical companies involved and corporate farming moved in and, you know, everything shifted. And so, so there is that sub story of what's happening within this conventional farming world as well. And that, and that even, even between the, those two worlds, there are, there's overlap, there's common areas. There's the fact that Rosalie doesn't know anything about seeds. So when she starts growing them, she's actually using John's mother's seeds. So right. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to show that common area as well, because from the overview of the seeds themselves, what's best for them, what's best for their survival is that we are all united in taking care of them, that we don't create these two worlds where Native communities are are protecting indigenous seeds and white communities are promoting um, genetically modified seeds. I'm, uh, you know, I'm invested in seeing a world in which everyone is protecting the seeds and the land and water. So, so, mm-hmm. so it was just trying to really explore those two, those two worlds side by side. Right. Yeah, no, I thought that was so fascinating because I, you know, work in the environmental field and generally like the storytelling that I want to do with this podcast and this platform is around environmental justice and thinking about like sovereignty and and self-determination for indigenous people across the world. And I just thought it was so interesting because I was curious, like, you know, you kind of started talking about it, but following up on it, like, what are your thoughts on the relationship that white farmers, you know, have with this idea of sovereignty over the land, like we see indigenous people fighting back, right? Asking for land back, asking for this like self-determination over their ancestral land. Like, where do you think, um, like, I guess, white farmers, white environmentalists really fit into that, uh, that work for the future? Well, you know, hopefully we can move to a place where uh, they're allies, they're good allies and understand the, the history, the need for this work to continue. But really what I see more than anything at this point is resistance to it, that people are vested in still controlling the land, still promoting this form of agriculture. And at the same time, I see tribes pursuing a, a, you know, a land back movement that I think is really hopeful. But I just, you know, the area that I was writing about this lower Sioux area, but the, the idea that you know, I'm. This to me will have to be a definitely a native-driven uh, movement that mm-hmm. just simply buys the land back. Because I, what I see mm-hmm. in Minnesota, other than you know small pockets of allies in, especially in urban communities, is far more a resistance to that that kind of shift. Right. Yeah. And do you think that resistance just comes from like the legacy of? these white farmers owning the land for so long, right? Like through these multiple generations, like we saw in the book, or I guess, where do you think some of that resistance to working under the same, for the same goal, right? Cause I think even in the book for a while, like I would say John and Rosalie do have similar ideas of wanting to take care of the farm and the land and, and building a relationship to it. But of course, then it starts like splitting as we see throughout the book. So I guess, yeah, do you think that like resistance just comes from like the colonial history of that land ownership? Yes. And a desire to perpetuate it, the, mm-hmm. you know, the desire to perpetuate um, white sovereignty. 
and and not make sacrifices that impact you know that ownership and entitlement that has been created over mm-hmm. over the years yeah definitely uh-huh. yeah and then uh you know moving along with the different characters i thought one way that you really interestingly showed two ways i guess right that indigenous women in particular are fighting back was again the juxtaposition of Gabby and Rosalie's character. And I thought it was interesting in, in page 170 where she, you know, is talking, Gabby's talking to Rosalie and she says, you hardly ever go to powwows or community events. Instead, you stay home singing to your plants. That's like the stereotype that white people have about Indians that we're all plant whispers. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that like quote was so funny because it was, you know, really showing that, you know, Gabby is like going to the powwows and she's involved in this other way. She's a dancer. And then Rosalie, you know, is really working with the seeds and the plants. And so I was just curious if you felt like the presentation of these two characters and their way of fighting back for the seeds was a way of showing like that there's two different paths to take or is it less of a binary and that we maybe we can be a blend of both characters. And I'm curious to see if you see yourself in either of those characters in your way of fighting back. Yeah, it's such a, you know, how we make change is such a complicated question. And I'm really fascinated by what activism looks like. And, you know, there is a, a more politically focused activism, which is the path that Gabby takes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I can see how that comes from her temperament and her character and the way that she is far more engaged in the world. But I've also seen over the years that uh, depending on, you know, how you're handling that work, that it also comes at cost to the people who are engaged in it because it's, it's so confrontational at times. And Mm -hmm. if it, if it's rooted in anger, that it ultimately takes a toll on the, the person who is working as an activist And so it was kind of an exploration of and saying there are different pathways to making this change in the world. And and again, at what cost? So Mm -hmm. Gabby sees an impact on her family, the fact that she really hasn't been present for her son um, as she might have been. And then Rosalie is far more isolated and she's actually and to me, they're they're doing the work. They're both doing the work where. Gabby is in the political realm working to protect rivers while mm-hmm. Rosalie is, she's actually planting the seeds. And that to mm-hmm. me is one of the most, one of the most beautiful acts of resistance is that you make sure those seeds themselves survive and they go back to the community and, and you're continuing the work from that direction. So mm-hmm. it's not a, a comment too much on, I, to me, we need, we need everyone, you know, that's why we need the right. circle because people will come with their different gifts and there will be people who can go into the, you know, the political realm and help pass legislation that maybe someday will recognize um, these seeds as being worth protecting as a, as opposed to the systems that really uphold corporate agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so we need those people. We need the people who are the gardeners and the farmers. We need the teachers who are going to make sure that our youth are taught so that we have a generation ready to carry on this work. Mm-hmm. And so I and I do believe that it doesn't have to be binary, that it can right. be, you know, especially at different stages of your life. I think 
Mm. You know, for me, I was far more inclined to politically focused activism when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And then I'm more interested now in, at a later stage of my life, in both growing the seeds and making sure in whatever I can do that these lessons are passed on, that right. I can help prepare a next generation. I can write books that preserve these stories mm-hmm. and then will come to this work um, depending on the gifts that they're bringing to it. Mm, yes, definitely. And I think it was really beautiful. And this is another part that I connected with the book because I grew up in a very matriarchal worldview, although I come from a patriarchal society, right? And even my community is deeply affected by that. I would say I still grew up with like really strong mothers and grandmothers and aunts um, and cousins that are all women. And I thought it was interesting with Gabby. I really liked, um, I thought it was just really striking this passage later on where she says, there are times when women have to make hard decisions, choices that are sometimes unforgivable. We have to see beyond and be prepared to do whatever is needed to save our people, even if it breaks our hearts. My grandmother had a soul of iron from what what her life cost her. It takes courage to do what you did. In another time, that act might have saved your family or even your tribe. And I just thought that was really powerful because that is sort of the theme throughout the book as well as just like all these sacrifices and work that women have to do throughout generations, right, to preserve these seeds so that they can keep going. And like you were mentioning now, everyone has their role in it. Either you're uh, working to pass that down with the youth or you're, you know, in the front lines of it, or you are actually putting your hands in the soil. So I am also interested to hear why the focus on indigenous women, right. And like this legacy amongst indigenous women and their resistance, has that just been a reflection of what you've seen in your life? The focus on indigenous women doing this work is, is partly because like you were saying about your family, the um, the role traditionally for in many communities for women has been to raise children and take care of the food, and that included mm-hmm. the seeds. So in um, you know in uh, for Dakota people, then the women were the seed keepers. So they would carry the bundle and make sure that their daughters were raised to know how to grow the, these foods. They know how to gather them. They know how to dress a deer when it's brought back. Um, and they have all of these skills. So I wanted to focus on that generational passing down of the seeds themselves and the knowledge and how important it was for women to carry this responsibility and how critical it could be to the well-being of your, your family and your community depending on the availability of other foods. Being able to have cultivated foods what gave a lot more stability to a traditional food system. So, so the women carrying the knowledge and the seeds, I wanted to show that from a generational perspective as, as being really important to uh, many communities. And then the same is true in my own family, that even though, you know, growing up, the gender roles have certainly evolved <laughs> over time, but the real power in the family was with the women. Right. And so that, you know, that was also something that I wanted to express, as well as a story that I'd, I'd heard about Dakota women who actually sowed those, those seeds into the hems of their skirts Mm-hmm. After the 1862 Dakota War, when they didn't know where they were being sent, 
And I just thought that act of strength and courage and the story that I've been told was that, you know, they they didn't know where they were being sent. And the Dakota were actually removed from Minnesota after the 1862 Dakota War and sent to South Dakota. Mm -hmm. And so so to think that even when families were hungry, that that you still protected enough seeds for the next season and for future generations. So that was a lesson, a, a profoundly important lesson that I wanted to pass on through that story. And that's why I have that one character, Marie mm-hmm. Black, yes. who is doing exactly that with her mother. And to show, well, this is how traditionally women have taken care of seeds and then to contrast that later on in the book with and now look at what we're doing with seeds through you know GMO and Mm -hmm. these other practices so it's all just to to look at it as human beings to assess where are we in this relationship and and does it make sense the path Mm -hmm. that we're on. Right. No, it definitely made me like that visual, like you said, of the just even reading it, right, of women weaving these seeds into their skirts was so impactful because to me, then it brought uh, other visuals of other stories I've heard, right, of like uh, Black people that were enslaved, right, from Africa across the continent, like putting seeds in their hair, like immediately that's what came to my mind. And then also thinking about um, like I here in the Seattle area, there's this garden called the Danny Wu Community Garden, which is in the international district. So there's a lot of different Asian communities that come and garden there, a lot of different Asian elders. They're like from Vietnam, they're from China, they're, you know, from all these different countries. And a lot of them have brought seeds over from their country and they are growing, you know, these traditional uh, foods and like vegetables and fruits in this like beautiful plot of garden right in the middle of Seattle. And I thought that was also a similar idea, right? That this is the way that we preserve. And and I think in particular for non-Indigenous communities like of that land, like for example, this urban garden that I'm talking about, I think it's really interesting how we'll blend in like Indigenous practices that are from two completely different parts of the world that can happen and coexist in like the same territory. Yes. And how how similar they are just in their intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I also heard about um, Hmong story quilts. Again, when people were coming into this country, they they had the seeds woven into the story quilts. Mm-hmm. So that that, you know, that how that preciousness of the few things you can bring <laughs> with you under duress from another country. It's your seeds. Mm hmm. Yeah. And going back again to the, you know, the quote that I read of Gabby, I think something else that has been on my mind as a young woman is like, you know, I'm growing up in this world where we just get pushed a lot of this narrative of like feminism. And this is like how we organize as women. But as an indigenous woman and someone that's reconnecting, I realize like my feminism, quote unquote, looks very different, you know, because I Mm -hmm. think hearing you speak about like, oh, these are the roles that women, Dakota women have had for years of like preserving seeds and knowing how to like work with them and cook with them and and use them to feed a community. It just makes me think again about the things that I've seen in in my pueblo, right, of growing up of my, my, I've talked to my grandma and her sister about like them, you know, their mother, so my great grandmother, preserving certain uh, bean seeds, right, to be able to feed them with beans and then the corn to make the the nixtamal and all that. And 
It just feels to me like it's a different type of quote unquote feminism, really not even feminism, maybe, right? It's a different worldview of just that. Yes, it's tied to food and and like cooking that I think a lot of like Western feminism wants to get away from. But for me, this is really what I want to get back to and feel honor and pride in knowing those skills because it will do nothing for me. And my, I don't see it anymore as like in the future, right? My future generations. And if I hope to have children one day, like it won't be enough for me to just know how to climb the corporate ladder, you know, and be this like feminist, like working girl. It really, for me, what's going to matter is can I pass down this information? And so I thought that was interesting, especially, you know, you being what I would consider like an elder in this work is like how you, I wonder how you've maybe experienced that as well throughout your life, just seeing these waves of like call for feminism and like there's ecofeminism, but I really think this book speaks to like that indigenous woman worldview of feminism. And, and knowing that in Dakota culture, as it was in, in many other communities, that these roles were equal, that they were, you know, there wasn't what we see in contemporary society where mm-hmm. women's work has been demeaned. It right. has, it has been, um, become something almost almost um, like you were saying that something that women need to get away from. Whereas what, what I hear you saying is that really there's another way to me, it's, it's a decolonizing step to reclaim mm-hmm. the power of this work as women. And to say that this is critically important work to be able to take care of seeds and plants and food. And, you know, from this, again, that ripple effect, you know, essentially we are in the way that we do this work, we're determining how our families are growing and, but also how the world itself around us is shaping. Mm -hmm. So it's profoundly important work. Right. Definitely. So shifting gears a bit to um, some of the parts that unfortunately I wasn't surprised about. I already knew some history about about it for Indigenous people here in Turtle Island. But I think for someone maybe that's not Native or not as familiar with the history, this might be a really good way to understand the history of residential schools with Rosaline's character and then more contemporary systems like the foster home system, right, that she goes through. I would love to know, like, why you thought it was important to include these aspects of like very true history that Indigenous youth, and we see it from far back, right, like from like the beginning of like a couple generations back of Rosaline's ancestors being taken, like women being taken away into residential school and that affecting their connection to seeds. And then we see it her in her present day, right? How she was displaced after her father passed away. I'm curious why you thought it was important to include some of that colonial legacy in here, especially maybe if like non-Indigenous people are reading this book. So one of the outcomes that I see from generations who've been impacted by these assimilation programs is that there's there's a, a significant degree of shame that people carry around not knowing their traditions, not knowing their language, not knowing who they are, and and they tend to internalize that shame. And you know, to me, this does this is a an outcome of the historical trauma that's been passed along with these experiences. And what I find helps a great deal with undoing that shame is knowing the history. So knowing why it is that um, this traditional diet that our ancestors had, this way of life, um, Mm -hmm. you see how it was impacted by 
the generations that were moved first onto reservations and where they lost access to their foods and they were given commodity foods in the in its place and how within a generation or two you there is so much knowledge then that isn't being passed on and then you have children being sent to boarding schools so then we're losing the language we're losing the culture i should say we're displacing it because i don't like to think of anything being lost right. but over those generations then if you can look at that history and how, and the role that each of these programs has played in continuing to displace that traditional knowledge then you come to your own life and you say this is why my family doesn't have its language or doesn't you know have this connection and then you have that that moment of choice that responsibility to say and this is a quote from uh, David Larson who was a Dakota historian and mm-hmm. and it was life changing for me when i heard him say when you know what was taken away then you can reclaim it so then you have choice and that's really what so much of my work is about is recording what was taken away so that we know what our ancestors relationship with foods and their their food ways looks like and it's a way to bring it back so that that to me is this deep work of cultural recovery in all that we're doing so you have to know your history you have to know why we're at the place that we're at and then we can do the work to reclaim it Right. No, I think that is so powerful. And I'm interested to hear if you feel comfortable sharing on here, like if these themes connect to your own story, like has this been something that you also experienced in your own life or in your family's life? Oh, yeah. The, you know, it all began for me growing up in Minneapolis with my dad is uh, was Swedish heritage mm-hmm. and my mom was Lakota and she and her sisters went to boarding schools out in in South Dakota So it was really it was really a disconnect of not understanding why they grew up out there in boarding schools why I grew up in Minneapolis and then she not really uh not really wanting to talk about it. So <clears throat> that's what started my journey was actually trying to understand cultural identity how mm-hmm. our family ended up where we are and then and then the work of um what i felt once i'd done all the the i'd done all the research i'd gone back to the boarding schools i'd um put together my family's story back to 1862 where we were part of that that war and the removal afterwards and then to think i have a responsibility for this story i have a responsibility not only to carry it but to share it because i'm a writer and this mm-hmm. is some this is work that i can do and then from there i moved into interviews with elders talking about how they transformed historical trauma mm-hmm. and then this book is my way of saying and here's a pathway here's a pathway that helps with the cultural recovery and mm-hmm. the healing work that we need to do so it does definitely resonate with my own personal story and journey Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And I liked what you were sharing too about just like understanding our history. That makes me think about just so much more that I need to understand because I think sometimes like what you were saying about the shame, it definitely can become an individual act of shame. Like sometimes I feel shameful that I don't 
know all the ways, right, that of the purepecha ways that us women should be like doing the work and like leading and also like our language. And I feel a lot of shame sometimes, but then I've started to look at the greater context of my own community being unfortunately really harmed by the narco violence that is very real in Mexico, right? And that also affects like the environment and land that is taken. And so, and then Catholicism, of course, as well, which, you know, religion plays into part as well with the boarding school system and all that. Um, So I really appreciate you saying that, you know, there's still that possibility of going back if we, if we look further into the history and beyond that. Yeah. It's really helpful to know your family's history as far back as you can go. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I guess, you know, you've talked throughout about how you see your role, you know, of like telling these stories. And I am curious because that's something I've been thinking a lot about with this platform, right? It's a multimedia storytelling platform. And as I've been getting to understand stories of other communities, like recently I went to, um, again, another museum here in Seattle that had history of the Japanese internment camps because uh, we had a couple here in this uh, the Washington area. And same thing, you know, I see that community, like the younger generations trying to preserve those history and that knowledge of their relatives that were displaced in that way. Um, so for you, how would you, I guess, what kind of advice do you have for maybe young people or just Indigenous people in general that want to do this storytelling? Like, why is it so important to archive these stories and to find our gifts and ways of keeping these stories alive? Oh, I, you know, stories and seeds. Those are the two, <laughs> for my own life, those are the two, um, two of the most important ways in which we can help support our families, our ourselves on our own journeys and also our communities. And that for too many years, our history was either repressed or it was told by non-Native people who mm-hmm. had their own agenda, you know, missionaries and government people who were who were giving a very slanted view of what was happening. And what I see now, especially with stories, is this resurgence of Um, storytellers coming forward in both oral and written forms and Mm -hmm. making sure that Native history and culture and experience is being told by Native people themselves. And Mm -hmm. that's that's a way to push back against the, um, the invisibility of Native communities, the ways in which, you know, people continue to want to think that Native people have are not here, are not, are not viable. And so my advice to young people is just tell your stories in whatever format appeals to you, because there's Mm -hmm. so many creative ways you can do that these days, you know, the um, spoken word and the media, like what you're doing, there's just, Mm -hmm. it's just so creative. And I, I, I encourage any young person to just make sure that your voice is heard. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for sharing that. I guess um, to wrap up, are there any specific calls to action that you have or any specific like organizations or places you would really encourage folks to connect with if they want to learn more, you know, from the themes that were in the book and around like this seed knowledge that we um, must, you know, engage with? Well, I do, I do like to call out the work of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, mm-hmm. which is a national level alliance of tribal communities and individuals and organizations who are all doing this work of reclaiming our indigenous food systems in order to, to reclaim our food sovereignty. And I, to me, this is critically important work. And the fact that 
you have an organization that is uh, supporting communities and figuring out how to do the work, but then helping to create a network so that mm-hmm. Native people can have that reclaim their own power and that ability to impact legislation, also share, you know, share knowledge, support each other, share seeds. Um, I think I think that's one of the organizations that is beneficial, really beneficial to know about. Thank you. Yeah, we'll definitely link it um, in the show notes so people can learn more. And then I guess for you, like, where can we read more of your work? Where can we find out more of your essays and upcoming events? Like, where should people um, connect with? So my uh, probably my website, um, which is dianewilsonwords.com. Thank you. Well, thank you again, Diane, so much for getting on a call with me. This has been so beautiful. Like I said, I was really excited to actually interview an author of a book I really enjoyed. Um, and I'm excited to just share this out there with everyone. Um, yeah. Any Anything else you would like to say before we close out? I, you know, I think just the last thing I want to say about seeds is there is so much out there in the world right now in terms of the way media portrays catastrophic Mm. Uh, climate change and just how how easy it is to get depressed and filled with despair and almost paralyzed in in not knowing what to do or where to begin and just remember that we do have a responsibility to our relatives who are still here to take care of them and that mm-hmm. when we re-engage with these relationships that this is also a path that is incredibly beautiful and nurturing and to me is a way to um, balance out much of the, you know, the other news that we're hearing. So I just want to encourage people to, to um, engage in those relationships. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Raices Verdes to stay updated on future projects. We are on Instagram at Nuestras Raices Verdes, website RaicesVerdesMedia.com. And you can listen to other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you like to get your podcasts. Um, If you'd like to support the work of Raices Verdes, you can provide a one-time donation or a monthly donation as low as $3 on Ko-fi. That's K-O-F-I at ko-fi.com slash raices verdes. It will all be linked in the show notes and your contribution supports to the well-being of Raices Verdes team and the expansion of our storytelling work. Thank you so much, Samara and Diane. I think it's really wonderful to listen to an intergenerational conversation happening as Diane is talking about how important that is. What an amazing conversation about cultural recovery, the importance of seeds and understanding our relation to the to the natural world. And I think it really just is a great example of what we were speaking about in our solar punk episode where how storytelling can be such an important way for us to understand not only what is happening now, but as Diane calls her work, what are the pathways forward that can help with the healing work and the cultural recovery for for Native peoples? Um, I think a really important lesson for those who are like me, who are not Native, so we can understand what as environmentalists we need to do and how we can contribute in the stories that we need to understand in order to do this work properly and be good allies in the movement. Thank you again, Samara and Diane, for this this beautiful conversation. And next week, um, Samara will be continuing this, this discussion around the importance of storytelling with educator and filmmaker and producer, Rachel Edwards-San. Enjoy. Enjoy.